This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. As more states require students take the ACT or SAT, we ask, is that a good idea? Plus, kids are not reading for fun as much as they once did, but our teachers aren't ready to give up on books just yet. And finally, vacations. Our teachers don't take them, and they say that's a problem. All that plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Lou Ann Fox, back for a second week in a row. What do you teach? Hi there. Well, I teach students. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. <laughs> a molder of young people. There yeah, you go. You threw it, right, threw it right back at me. Yeah, what I teach subjects? High, school, high school English. <laughs> Maddie Burkemper, besides teaching students, which we know you teach, what do you teach? Third grade. And David Persley, what do you teach? High school math and computer science. And all three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Despite a growing movement by colleges to ditch standardized test scores on admissions applications, millions of high school juniors each year still take the ACT or SAT. The tests have been criticized for years as being biased, gameable, largely inaccurate at gauging students' readiness for college. Still, the fact is, the ACT and SAT remain a significant, and for many students, daunting hurdle on their way to college. But states are trying to make it a little less daunting. At least a dozen now require all high school juniors to take the ACT or SAT, paying all associated fees and giving students time in school to complete them. And new research suggests that these policies are pushing more students, especially low-income students, to go to college. If you make it more convenient, if you break down these kind of barriers to actually taking the test or paying for the test, does that change students' mindset about the test, even change their mindsets potentially about college? I think so, actually. I, I, I think so, because it's a way of saying to all of the students, you're, you're all worth it. Um, it's not just the ones who can pay, and it's not just the ones who have a, a legacy of having ACT prep work because your parents could pay for that. It's it's a way of saying, you know, here's here's a gate and everybody gets to go through it. Yeah, I, I'm i going to try to straddle line here and say yes and no. I totally okay. agree with your points, Luann. Um, in my experience, there are some students who I don't think would have ever seen themselves in college, but actually are like academically strong enough, but are disadvantaged first generation, don't see themselves going to college, don't really have that tangible connection to what the idea of college is like. And by forcing them to take the ACT and then actually doing well, they get a lot of scholarships. In the same vein, I think that the ACT is not a very good measurement of the different intelligences that I believe exist. And I think that, like, in general, students should be required to take it because what they might realize is that, like, they have this particular aptitude that the test is testing. And if college is looking for those things, then they can give them some scholarship money. But, like, I think colleges in general shouldn't require students to report the ACT scores at all because I don't feel like it's, like, in my opinion, a robust indicator of a student's knowledge. So like for some students, it doesn't matter if they're taking it. It's not the right test. It's not the right thing to measure their intelligence. But for some students, I think it is a one less barrier to entry that might push them in in a direction towards college. So to complexify that a little bit more, it's kind of interesting um, to your point. 
the SAT has made changes in these last few years to reflect more of it looking like the ACT. So even the body that makes the SAT, which is parented by the College Board, has recognized that the ACT has got a better track record. So in terms of measuring that very thing, and also we now have a thing called ACT work keys that is more for like a, a vote-technical kind of so, I mean, ACT as a company seems to have more, um, I don't know, what roots or like they, they, they've been proven more over time and they're actually expanding versus not. And always. there's an acknowledgement by both educators and these testing companies that there is this criticism out there, right, that, that the, the tests themselves may not be accurate reflections of students' abilities or achievement levels or what they might be capable of in college, and they also might be culturally biased. I mean, those those criticisms have been around for years, if not decades. Um, and are you seeing a response to that on the part of the testing companies? Yes. Um, I I'm, don't mean to keep jumping in all the time, but um, I'm somebody who helps to review that. So um, I'm I there are there are teams of people across the nation that review for bias um, for the ACT and the SAT. And, um, you know, that work is done remotely. But I think the the claims of that kind of bias in terms of gender and race, um, it, it, it's as simple as like uh, names in a question, the way a question is framed. There are now multiple ways to get that checked versus, say, maybe 10, 12 years ago when that wasn't um, as recognized a thing. Uh, I do want to dig into the research a bit um, that I mentioned at the top of this segment just because I find it interesting. So the journal Education Policy and Finance last summer did an analysis of 11 states that since 2001 have required high school juniors to take either the SAT or ACT. And this analysis found that requiring the that students take the test um, revealed more students, and that was the parlance of the researchers, revealed more students, especially low-income students who were college-ready who had not been taking the test before. Uh, college-ready defined as a score of 20 on the ACT, 1060 on the SAT. Before these universal testing policies for every 10 low-income students who scored uh, college-ready on these tests, there were roughly five low-income students who would have scored college-ready but did not take the test. And after these universal testing policies were put in place, those students were kind of coming out of the woodwork. They were being forced to take the test, and they were thereby getting their scores recorded and showing to themselves and um, colleges that they were, in fact, on an academic track to be able to be ready to go to college. I guess um, for all three of you, and I do also want to bring Maddie in. I know you teach younger kids, but, I mean, what does that research tell you about how kids view the these tests, view college in general? The best lens that I could respond to that question would be just like, are you like awareness? Like, is a student aware of opportunities surrounding college and like what college is? This conversation for me, since I teach third grade, has to be scaled like way back to when you're a little kid running around your family's house. And, you know, I saw my parents' diplomas on the walls and I saw my mom wearing her Mizzou sweatshirt and I had an awareness of what college was. Um, School and this pride. Was like, I mean, they growing up. Did you they know? talk about it explicitly, or is oh, this yeah. like something yes. that was there? Well, um, kind of from the an, atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, from an early age, like it's implied in the atmosphere. It was implied in the atmosphere in my own house. So, like that culture really permeated my my entire childhood. From my personal experience, from the kids I teach, that culture a lot of times is missing from 
from them. Because their their parents didn't go to college. Right. And so one thing that I'm doing this year is I'm buying college pennants and like decorating my classroom with them just to provide like, hey, this is a college culture. So yeah. I guess like tying all of that back to the actual topic at hand, I think that I agree with what David was saying earlier about how the ACT and SAT, it can do a really, and it does in some aspects, do a good job at identifying one set of intelligence. But I think that there does need to be more gateways for students to access college resources. The ACT can and should exist, and I think that having it be required and paid for is awesome. But there are kids in my classroom who don't do well on paper pencil tests. They don't. Can but, I piggyback off of you? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah so take it up. I see where it does open pathways for students who may have not have seen themselves who have those particular aptitudes. But when I see that the average ACT score for a white student is 23, 23 and a half, and the average score for a student of color is 17, 17 and a half, that's a five-point gap, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you extrapolate that to college applications and, and the millions of dollars in disparities for scholarship money that it has for students. Not to beat a cynic here, but like it's clear that it is opening pathways for students. But like we're talking about equity and like tipping the scales, I don't see this as a solution, which is why like I can't ever completely be bought into the test because I mean, not to make this my own personal soapbox, but I always felt like I was competent, but I never tested well and I got a very mediocre ACT score, but I managed to go to college and be successful. And like now I'm navigating the tension of being a teacher in my classroom trying to impart knowledge and values within my students and like I understand you have to play the game to a certain extent so like we do a lot of testings and we do recreate a lot of high stakes environments to like equip them with a certain comfort level around those things but I can say for however many times you can try to you know recreate that setting for some students that's just not going to be where they thrive and I don't think that's yeah and I don't think that's the indicator and it's just like entrepreneurship and adaptability and like those types of intelligence are starting to become like more valued mm-hmm. and I think those are also really valuable things that can be brought to like an academic setting but I think the institution that is currently doesn't really value those skills quite to the extent that they should and there's nothing being brought down I think to the high school level that would be another potential equalizing yeah. force. So for there students. are a lot of I mean hundreds of colleges in fact who are either fully ditching yeah. the SAT ACT maybe ditching a part of it namely the SA part um, especially selective colleges private liberal arts colleges so if, if, if a college is not measuring uh, a student by SAT, ACT, like what are some other ways in which the students you teach you think should be, should be gauged, uh, should be assessed on how they are ready for college? Perf- I would say performance task. Yeah. Um, I, I teach, yeah, I teach AP computer science principles, and it's half exam, half, um, half performance task. And in my experiences, those are where, where students thrive because they have the capacity to discern and to think critically and to, like, demonstrate that. But it's very hard to do that when you're taking a multiple choice test, right? To, to David's point earlier, Luann, would you want to see your school or district um, require the ACT or SAT? Well, since you're asking me an open end, I think it's an open ended question. I, here's what here's <laughs> what I think what should happen. I think that the like Michigan's on the right track by making that be like the test for the state. I wish that state testing would actually go away. I. I, I would want to move to having the AC, the ACT and the SAT, but the SAT is like, I think, a different, you know, ball of wax, and that's like a slightly different subject, but not be something that's an also along with like getting ready for, you know, the state of Kansas, you know. Um, that so you would say the SAT, ACT replace 
yeah. the high stakes state tests that right. are used for mm-hmm. right because um, the high I mean, stakes at least, at least for juniors. I mean, because right you can't because the high stakes. I guess the state tests, it's like, what are those stakes? I mean, it satisfies the mandates of the state, of a legislature at the time period, and can change in two years, in three years, in five. And just, that's what I think I would like to see. I think that's one of the reasons our kids have testing fatigue so much is because districts, if they're large, like, we must have a district measurement. Why? To You know, why? You know, we have to have a state measurement, and now we have this national measurement, and it's just like, it gets to be too And you were were referencing Michigan, just to to put a bow on that, in Mm -hmm. Michigan. Michigan is one of the states that has instituted required SAT, ACT testing. Actually, it's ACT in that state, but uh, they did that in 2007. And since that time, um, as the Brookings Institute found, thousands of more students per year um, have enrolled in college than previously before the universal testing policy was put in place because, at least in part, according to the Brookings Institute's uh, conclusions, uh, more students are taking the ACT, getting scores that show them to be college-ready and enrolling in college. Um, it might be a curveball at the end of this conversation, but, of course, uh, we haven't even mentioned the fact, uh, Luann, that the ACT has been undergoing a pretty heavy controversy. In Not this, the ACT. The, the, SAT. the SAT. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're basically the right. same right now. No. <laughs> no, they're not, no, they're not the same. No. Uh, but the SAT has been going through a pretty big controversy. And do you just want to briefly explain what that is and how that might affect whether you would want that test to be required? The June SAT was scored in such a way that students who had been taking that previously and they were trying to up their scores got better but actually scored the same or in many cases their score went down. So there was a, a widespread appeal to the college board, um, the parent, you know, of the SAT to like rescore it. And so they came back with a statement that said, hey, we do this process called equating. And so, no, basically we're not going to rescore this at all. So just kind of deal with it. And you just, the outcry just hasn't gone away because uh, the they they basically admitted they they had they'd given an easier test in the summer, which is not on the kids. That's on the college board. And so the way they did the equating, the this equals that, and the whatever the process was. I mean, you have smart kids taking the SAT, and they're saying this is not actually fair. So they're wanting that rescored. The August SAT was just given as well, and results back, and apparently. Um, they used an SAT that had been already used in 2017, and that was leaked. So now they're wanting a refund for the August SAT. So it's it's a long way of saying the SAT test in of itself is in danger of losing credibility on a widespread level. Right. I think that speaks to, I think, I mean, standardized testing in general. There's an opacity to how it's scored. Um, there's a, a general sense of... Of, I think, you know, lack of control and unfairness on the part of the test takers. Security and whatnot as well, right. Yeah. Yeah. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. In the past 40 years, there has been a seismic shift in how teens are spending their free time. That's how the researchers put it in a new study published this month for the American Psychological Association. And no surprise, smartphones and other digital technology are the main culprit. This report, entitled Trends in Adolescent Media Use, 1976-2016, to 
says that by 2016, the average 12th grader said they spent six hours in their free time every day either texting on social media or doing some other online activity. Ask any teacher, that's not shocking. But what this new study does for the first time is really quantify exactly what's being lost when kids are online. And the biggest loser in this new digital age fight for attention is reading, namely pleasure reading, reading done in one's free time. This research finds that in 1980, 60% of 12th graders said they read a book, newspaper, or magazine that was not assigned for school every day. By 2016, that had fallen to 16%. So I'll acknowledge my biases right up front. I'm a former English teacher, uh, avid reader still today, also a journalist. So that statistic that I just quoted gives me heartburn. But should I be worried? (laughs) But should I be worried? Is this a sign of the apocalypse? Oh, my. Oh, my. Gosh, way to get fatalistic. Yeah. I, I thought, well, I thought, thought, my I thought topic, Maddie said the topics yeah, were going to be a little easier today. Yeah, you said my topics were serious enough. Yeah. <laughs> Should I be worried? Uh, from what I see, that surprises me, too, but but then it doesn't because I teach AP, and so I'm, I'm teaching kids who will bring books on their Kindle or hardcover to bring because they're going to do that. I, I assume that school-wide, district-wide, right, when you take the body of kids as a whole, that's that's probably really true, right? But I don't see them. Okay, Maddie, reassure me. I agree with that stat based on what I'm seeing in my classroom, but I also have a limited optimistic view of human society, that we're problem solvers, that we're creative, that we're innovative, that these things are going to come out, we're going to go, oh, crap, this is really bad, and that teachers are going to band together to try and help with that problem. (laughs) David, you are the technologist among us. Yeah, I don't want to like steer this conversation in a completely different direction, but I'm going to try to like tie together all of my points here. Do it, do it. Um, Whenever you have the academics who tend to be older who like are looking at the behaviors of the younger generation, that dissonance creates like a fear. I think we also do underestimate the extent that students actually do consume knowledge and media and information. But here's the issue, right? Back in the day when you had only print text, because the barriers to entry were more involved, there was a certain level of credibility that any piece of printed text you had, had, right? Whereas like now, because those barriers to entry are so much less, I think the bigger issue is less with whether or not students are still consuming media and information. It's whether or not they're doing so with information that is like factual and trustworthy and reliable, Mm -hmm. right? And so like, I think... If we're trying to push books in front of kids still, that's kind of a lost cause. Not to the extent that reading's unimportant, but, like, as society adapts, the behaviors of the young generation kind of funnel into what the demands are for, like, the next generation, right? Technology is going to be much more involved in next generation of, of jobs and things like that. So, like, the fact that they're more connected to that may not be such a bad thing because it gives them a fluency of preparedness for, like, jobs in those fields and industries. But because the information you're consuming has less checks on its on its credibility and worth i think the bigger issue is like students are like consuming media knowledge that may not be reliable and trustworthy and they're not being taught to think critically it's very clickbaity i don't know if you guys have heard that term but like yes. things yes, aren't written that old that. Think, oh, good thanks no, yeah. okay i'm sorry that was Whoa. Rude. that was really rude i'm sorry <laughs> what's <laughs> what bias is right? that kind of like <laughs> like Jeez, you click and then <laughs> I'm sorry. like when you go fishing yeah. all right go for it. <laughs> sorry, I'm no i'm i am too i'm sorry i you guys are clickbait is but but I'm like but i don't think a lot of kids i don't think a lot of kids realize what clickbait is 
kids. It's like what they read. Right. And so uh, their, 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 inter- their interaction with media and information is more driven by like what's going to grab them the most, not necessarily what's like the most intellectually stimulating. So yeah. I'm, I'm down with everything David said, except that we don't know what clickbait is because we do. So I'm, anyway, but I'm down with all that. And I think it was a really, really good point about the reliability of, of that. But also, God, there's something to be said for uh, kids. If it's just if it if it's just not stimulating and punching them in the gut right mm-hmm. away, you know, they, they don't they don't sustain it. There's no, there's no right. sustainability. I think that's why Instagram is just really eclipsed Facebook because um, pictures, 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 and then the cute hashtag and the challenge to make the cute hashtag and the say the pithy words. But it's not like anything that's sustained or anything that's really developed. And I think we see that when, you know, when we have movie reviewers rate movies. Oh, this thing started slow. Well, maybe it's just like setting the scene in mm. a lush way or something. And it's like what we will handle for our attention. So reliability is certainly one. But my gosh, you got kids who are like, oh, it took two minutes to read that. I just know. I mean. Yeah. So this yeah. this gets. Yeah. So, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, Luann, you're, you're starting to get there, I think. But I. I think to David's point, right, I mean, I think we might be living in a transition where, like, yeah, books just maybe are not as important as they once were. As no, much as, I disagree. As, okay. Well, we Go can come it. back to that. But I do want to okay. say, like, what yeah, is the— I disagree with that, too. What is the—what do kids Sorry, get out of reading— what no, is kids? I'm with you. What do kids get out of reading a book or a longer magazine article that they don't get out of reading what you were saying, the, the pithy stuff on Instagram and, and the tweets and— and things on Snapchat. Like, Something what's, what's that's considered. I mean, it's like if you're really going to consider a problem, you can't sum that thing up in three sentences. Mm-hmm. You have to like, you know, it's like it's like a Rubik's cube, right? Or it's like a or it's like a multi- die or something. You have to like look at the sides, and you have to look at like the voices. What are the interplay? Like this authority says this, and that authority says that. That's why we're teaching kids to synthesize because there's many different points out there, and if they're going to research or synthesize anything, that's a thing that happens in time. Yeah. Deep analysis requires a certain level of sustained focus. I'm totally with you on that. I think there's still room for books to be relevant, just not in physical form. And I think it's about like pushing digital media you don't to students. Think that there's room for books in physical form. I think I think there's gonna. I think a lot of students who are going to be avid readers may do it a lot less with hand. But like define book. Do you mean I like like, like like ebooks? Like, like students are really going to be into reading. Right, e-books. but like you're talking chapter books. Yes, like okay. still books. Yeah. But I not. teach third grade. I sometimes frequently read picture books, and it is really great. And I'm thinking like illustration, like Caldecott winners. Mm. Okay. Guys- yeah. But Maddie, you were yeah. you were vehemently when I said that we might be moving, transitioning towards a future or in, in an era when books might be not as important or going by the wayside. You vehemently. Yeah, I, I, that's because I consider Kindle books. Right. Like if you're reading on oh, a Kindle. Okay. Cool. okay. This if is you're reading semantics. on a Kindle, that's okay. a book. Yeah, I, I mean, I can I very much so empathize with people who have a strong emotional connection to physical, tangible, turn the pages, Atticus Finch smoking a cigar, reading his book, like whatever. You know what I mean? Like someone like like ooh, you're it you know a like pipe, a by book, the way. whatever. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like like the the ambiance of like oh, you're in a library with Hermione Granger and you're you're stacked in study books. Like yeah, I love that, but. If Hermione Granger is going to be holding a Kindle, like, it weighs less. It's okay. Like, I'm going to cry, too, at text funerals. But, like, we're reading on a Kindle. It will all be fine. So I'm not stuck on that part Mm -hmm. of the conversation at all. I'm stuck on the skills you get from 
reading longer text. Reading yeah, longer text, sustained, complex, yeah, versus yeah, yeah, the sure. skills you get Absolutely. from, or even fiction versus um, like newsprint. And this gets back to the original point made that there's been a dramatic drop in the mm-hmm. in the number of kids who say that 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 they're doing that type of activity for pleasure mm-hmm. in their off time away mm-hmm. from school, picking up a book that was not assigned to them, and reading it to get lost in a fictional world. Fewer and fewer kids yeah. are doing yes. that. That's not debatable. Mm-hmm. What's the consequence of that? Maybe inability to focus over like a long haul, mm-hmm. right? Or yeah. to or to think deeply about a problem and think it through all the way to the end, and not just see the surface level. If I put the square in the in the here, it's going to work. I mean, it's just the whole like you know, think of ramifications of things. And yeah. in no. my classroom, that discrepancy shows up like black and white. We practiced our reading stamina last week. Where like we we all sit as a class and we practice seeing how long we can all do sustained silent reading, and my class was able to do four minutes five and I teach third grade four minutes five minutes one minute, one minute, for third grade, and I had to really really amp them up and like convince them we can get ten ten minutes and like wow. I think even ten minutes third grade there's a stat this is backed up where you're supposed to be able you I as a teacher I can expect you to focus for 10 minutes times your grade level so I should be expecting my third grade class eventually to to sit and focus for 30 minutes and for some of my students that is going to be close to an impossible feeling task all year and, and, and so by the time those students get to high school the win yeah well yeah. I mean I just I kind of think it begets itself because yeah. you can't you can't teach what it's like to get lost in something, right? You can't teach what it's like to get lost in reading. The the kid has to do oh, it. I think you to can. have no, I don't know, but I'm just saying you can't you can't mandate that. Once the kid oh. does that, and it has to be organic, okay. right, yeah, right. I got and if the kid does that, you're like, you know, that feeling where like I don't know, time, like I don't know what happened over like the last half hour because I was busy in this whole other world, whatever. I mean, like Read when allowed. you have when you have that feeling, then I think it begets itself, and the kid is like, man, that was a good feeling. I'm gonna have that again when when I can like shut myself in my Whatever, but I mean, I think the kid has to have that feeling first um, in order to have them. I think you can explicitly teach that. I'm hoping because, Uh. well, okay, how do they focus so long on Facebook and Instagram? I think it's an. I don't think it's sustained focus. I think it's not. I think I think it's like, oh, what's the word? Um, Dopamine. The notifications are like incessant and nonstop. But haven't you ever been on social media and you lose track of time? Well, that's that's a yeah. Sen- yeah, that's essentially the same but I would, concept yeah, but I have not, you want to apply to not, a book. I, I would not compare that. I would compare that to reading though. I feel like the 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 psychological stimulation is much different. Like if we were to map out brainwaves. Yeah, it would, it I think on social media it's a lot more tangential. What about right. a movie? Would your brain look similar watching a movie as it does to reading a book? I'd be inclined to believe that it's a lot closer to a book than social media, but was, I don't think yeah. it's the exactly. Yeah. How many? How many of us like go go to social media, Facebook, or whatever? And it's kind of like you go down that rabbit hole. Oh, you know, all you the talk time. about right. No, because yeah. I'm reading this and I'm reading what somebody else has brought to me. But now I wonder about the one thing, and so now I'm going to go click on this and research that. And then when I do that and I read that for like 30 seconds, oh my god, I can have a hyperlink on this other thing, and then I'm going to go here <laughs> and here and here. And yes, yeah. can I lose myself? Absolutely. What have I learned at the end of it? Minutia and trivia and facts and things that don't make me actually smarter because I haven't like done any. I've not oh, been transported to any totally one particular agree. place. 
but I've I guess I've digested something, yeah. but it's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add up to anything. It's just like the journey that I elicited to take, and I did, and it's like, well, that's cool. I know this can, thing. But. Can I pick it back off of you and hopefully provide a slightly optimistic note? Go for I it. have seen friends of mine. I don't think this is something a lot of people in the younger generation are doing intentionally, but curate their social media to give them very particular things related to news and information. So, like, I have people oh, yeah. who are on Twitter who only follow news and media outlets. And so even though they are kind of getting inundated with those notifications, what they're doing is they're following that to articles mm-hmm. that talk about present daily topics. And so, like, like and, and so they'll be reading, like, some sort of long-form piece, right? Like, it's a 10- to 20-minute article that's, like, more of a deep dive. And I think there's a few different... I think news a lot and media of outlets are that are that. starting to do that more, like mm-hmm. like I love Vox, like not to give a shameless plug to Vox, Vo- but they, I think they're Vox. really pushing forward for like more deep dives into topics because they know that if you actually want to understand a, a topic with depth, you need prior knowledge and you need to think about the future implications of it, which is a lot different than I think what a lot of like the earlier news media outlets that got on social media did. Mm-hmm. But I think like it's about teaching kids to use it in that way because if mm-hmm. they aren't taught to do that, they're certainly not going to do it on their own. But I, th- I think there's a way to do that. But it's just like it, it has to be super intentional. I think I'm super hopeful with like news content and the way that people are going to access news through online sources like with Vox or the Atlantic. Like there's yeah. so much long form journalism on sites like that that are really popular with – well, I, I people think, in our generation. I think it's so sad I'm that, like, that. I think it's sad that we are in the information age, and mm-hmm. so access to that knowledge is more widely available than it's ever been. Yes. But I think unless if you're being compelled to do it in the context of like something academic related, a lot of people aren't going to do that on their own. Yeah. Vox needs to send me a check at the end of this. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Ezra Klein. Ezra, I love you. How are you? (laughs) I love Ezra. I know. He is the man. Well, media will save the day once again. And Kyle. I love Kyle Palmer, too. You guys should check him out if you've never heard him. You know, Kyle Palmer also runs a podcast, too, if you haven't heard. Yeah, he's super. I heard he's really up and coming. Well, we will go to... I want to briefly touch upon another topic before we get to the end of our, our episode. Uh, I know you just finished summer break, so you're now back at school. It may feel a bit weird to talk about vacation, but there's this. The U.S. Travel Association reports that Americans collectively last year left more than 700 million vacation days unused. 200 million of those days did not roll over at the end of the year, so Americans just lost them. About half of all full-time workers in America did not take their full allotment of paid vacation days. So what, you might say? Americans are industrious, hardworking. But NPR reports taking more vacation may actually be good for your health. Increased leisure time is linked to lower blood pressure, better sleep, improved mood. In one study, men who took an annual longer vacation had a reduced risk of heart attack from those who did not. So the situation is a bit different for teachers than many other workers. You get holidays and summers, but um, what about personal days during the year? Do you ever use up all of your personal days that you're given? No. 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 (laughs) Unanimous. If a teacher does that, it's usually a sign that they're quitting at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So you get me directly into... A thing that I felt a lot when I was teaching, there was an unstated, sometimes stated pressure to not (laughs) miss school, not necessarily from my principal, but from other teachers. Teachers, in my experience, didn't like it when other teachers take time off. You feel that, too. I think that that ropes into the superhero complex or the superhero lie, the myth that people put on teachers, which is currently my number one 
like, public enemy. When people call teachers heroes, I'm like, shut up. I'm a human, and I deserve mm-hmm. to be treated. I'm a professional, and I deserve to be treated with the respect and dignity that goes along with being a professional. I deserve Am to I take a, a personal professional? day. <laughs> sure. But, like, yeah. I am, don't call me a hero because heroes... Well, okay. I don't know. I'm not going to dig into that. There's, there are yeah. times when, right now. when teachers really probably should take some mental health mm-hmm. days. I mean, if, if we know that that um, is a valid thing in other professions, then I, I can't believe that it wouldn't be here. This is a profession where you're making 100 decisions in the course of a day, all, you know, and you're dealing with uh, all kinds of people. I mean, you know, just the, the FaceTime that you have with so many different bodies um, can be super taxing. And if you're not at your best um, as a teacher, you really probably need to to do the thing that's going to make you better for the people that you serve. So, you know, people should take them when they need to. I think it's also especially the case in early career, career educators, and I don't have research on this. This is just me speaking anecdotally, but my first two years in the classroom, especially when I was like, not in good headspaces and or tired or just overwhelmed by all the things I had to do, there would have been really, really valuable moments to just take one day to kind of gather my bearings and get back into it. But I don't think that uh, schools are intentional. (laughs) So like, I don't think, I don't think administrators and staff necessarily look for that. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like it's the, okay, now I'm a somewhat experienced educator. I don't feel I don't feel disinclined to take days off now because, like, I know my worth, and mm-hmm. if I need a day for myself and or mm-hmm. something to me up, I'm going to do that. And I think that's, in general, the experience most people have is they get more experience. But I think especially for people who are, like, earlier in their, in their, in their career, educators, um, educator journey, especially as educators, like, it's necessary mm-hmm. to give yourself that time to decompress yeah. because that stress is so real. Right. And, you know, you're not you're not being told to do that, or at least in my experience, I wasn't told to do that. I was just told to kind of like push through it. Right. And I think as as our awareness of mental health um, broadens, I'm hoping um, across several venues, right? And we're and we're doing better by kids that we could do better by the people who are teaching kids as well. If uh, taking care of their mental health is important, then that's certainly going to be important for teachers too. Maddie, you, you started know? this, and then and then David, you also kind of echoed it, but it seems like there's a there is like a sense of confidence that you have to build first before you are yeah. able to kind of assertively say, yeah, I want to take a personal day. So what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And then once you get there, I mean, like what? Not worth it. And then, no, and then you know, I was going to literally, that's a perfect segue into like Taking a personal point. day isn't worth it? Yeah, because no. be, you don't know who's going to be in front of your students. Oh. Right. They can be mean. Like I've had. You have behavior problems. I've had generally up. positive experiences. And like luckily we've had enough subs now where like we can kind of, if it's done far enough in advance, decide who's there. But I also feel like mm-hmm. personal days come that far in advance. And so you're really like, okay, I'm just going to take whoever I can get to fill in my classroom. Right. And it's like, I have students come back to me the next day being like, yeah, that sub was terrible. Well, um, and, and yeah. you know, sometimes so kids are going to— it's almost gonna... more stressful to be off than it is yeah. to be oh, it is. It's yeah. always— Before we go, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. The New York Times reports the U.S. Education Department under Betsy DeVos Uh-oh. is considering allowing schools to use federal funds to purchase guns nope, for nope, teachers. Nope, nope. DeVos nope. is reportedly eyeing a pot of nope. money called Student Support and Academic Achievement Grants, which is intended for programs in the nation's poorest schools. It's been a longstanding federal policy to prohibit the purchase of weapons with education dollars. 
Public support for boosting teacher pay appears to be growing, according to Education Next annual survey of public attitudes towards education. When given information about teacher salaries in their area, 49% of respondents said teacher pay should increase. That's up 13% from the previous year. I will believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Education yeah. Next says teacher through? activism, including strikes and walkouts in at least six states last spring, may be helping sway public opinion. Mm-hmm. New federal environmental policy is expected to make kids in America sicker. The EPA's analysis of a new Trump administration plan to relax emission standards for coal-burning power plants Classic. concludes one of the consequences <laughs> yeah. will be school children missing more. More school. What is climate change? Tens yeah. of thousands more what? days of climate school change? annually what? by 2030 due to things like asthma and other illnesses caused by diminished air quality. Oh my gosh. And a principal Same at a cold. high school in Newark, New Jersey installed washers and dryers in an old locker room to allow students to do laundry at school three days a week. They so. should learn it. That's yes. He <laughs> says it's an attempt oh, to avoid Lord. kids getting bullied for having dirty clothes. Kudos to that school. Those were some it. other education stories that caught our eye this week. not be pushed in the washers. Right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> No, like, I mean, like, hopefully that lesson's bullying yeah. and they're not like, like, that's another thing that they can do to the kids. Those are some other education stories that caught our eye this week. If you see something you think needs mentioning, email it to us. No wrong answers pod at gmail.com. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Maddie... What are your kids into? Pack up songs. What are those? Something that would be really f- confusing for a sub to understand. Um, JK, <laughs> uh, it's I put a song on um, the speakers, and that's how long they have to pack up. And I have picked "Love Train" by the OJ's, and they. Love That's amazing. It. it is yes. so much fun. Show them the odies. When we um when we finish early, I let them literally make a love train and we like do a conga line around the classroom and like oh dance. Your and it sounds is epic. It's so much fun. Uh, Luann, what are your kids into? Well, um, here's the thing my kids are into. We just started back to school. So my kids are into um saying they don't want to go to the back to school dance, which was just this last Friday because it's just not cool. But then actually going awesome. because I was also there to kind of <laughs> chaperone and stuff. So they're like said they didn't want to go, but then they all showed up. And then here's another thing that they're into. <laughs> uh throwing me in the middle of the dance floor oh. and uh, make, they did the circle right and I oh, had to get in the circle you. but That's the awesome. thing is is I didn't know this because back in my day you didn't give a person a hat and then make them dance so they pass around the hat so whoever what? like gets the hat goes hmm. in the middle and dances and then that person is supposed to give the hat to somebody else and that's their cue to go in the middle and dance and I didn't know that but that's what they're into huh Okay. And you dance with okay. a hat. Like, maybe like that's... a top hat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what kind of hat is this? Like a, like a, like a stove, like a, like a stovepipe hat? A chef's hat. <laughs> like a regular hat. God, it's just a hat. Like, it's a hat <laughs> like the two of you are wearing. It's just a hat. Like a okay. baseball cap. Like like that's baseball awesome. Hat. I can dig that. <laughs> David, what are your kids into? <laughs> uh, my kids um, have been into like 
um, these like rental scooters called birds. Oh yeah, and they're like not legally allowed to do it because you have to be eighteen or older. But it's like different cities are like doing a thing where like they leave different bikes around the city and you can like get the app installed and rent it for Mm -hmm. like a very reasonable cost and it's supposed to like you know focus on like making things more green but like you have to be 18 or older to do it and now there's like these scooters around called birds in kansas city that like they're kind of like all over the city and i've seen like i haven't seen any of my kids on them but i've heard my kids talk about it and i have seen people on them who definitely don't look like they're old enough to be riding them or like understand road laws yeah no for sure <laughs> well, like i mean there's so many layers so i mean like most adults who i don't even have helmets but you're supposed to have a helmet yeah. but like they said if you put your mailing address in the app they'll send you a helmet for free because they're like really trying to encourage rider safety um but most people who ride them don't use helmets at all but like minors aren't supposed to ride them at all either because you know like they're not 18 oh yeah uh, birds a big deal in kansas city right now <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Maddie Burkhamper, David Persley. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.